Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Jeff Meekum, and today's episode is another addition to our Residency Applicant Toolkit. Unlike most of our episodes in the toolkit so far, today's episode is geared towards more junior and other faculty members rather than the applicants themselves. The topic will be how to write a strong letter of recommendation for a student applying to otolaryngology residency. Joining us today, we have Dr. Brad De Silva, a current program director of an otolaryngology residency program for over 10 years, as well as the laryngology fellowship program director of his institution for over six. Dr. De Silva has ample experience both writing and reading letters of recommendation over his career and during his tenure as program director. So whether it is your first or your 50th letter recommendation that you're preparing to write, we hope there's something to help you improve the quality of your letters to better be able to advocate for your students. Dr. De Silva, we're glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Dr. Meekum. Appreciate you having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. So let's go and get started. Dr. De Silva, what tips do you have for finding opportunities to have meaningful experiences with students in order to be able to sincerely recommend a student in a letter? Well, as a program director, it's fairly straightforward for me. I get to know our applicants very well uh, over the course of one to four years, of course. Most of the time, it's one to two years, but sometimes longer. And so we set up meetings pretty early in their academic career, again, sometimes in their first, second, uh, or early on in their third year of medical school. And I get to know them at that point, creating a longitudinal relationship, getting them involved in our department. We have a whole mentorship program that we begin for first-year medical students at our institution. And so uh, it's for me, it's uh, fairly well organized for me to know them before they ever get to their fourth year, before they're asking for a letter of recommendation. And we talk about uh, people to get to know within our department, division directors, of course, the chair uh, as well, our associate program directors, so that they can have many options for requesting a letter of recommendation. From uh, an interaction standpoint, once they get to on their rotations or they're doing some observ observational work uh, prior to a rotation, I like to have them in my clinic setting because that really gives me the opportunity to get to know them better, see how they interact with students. I'm sorry, see how the student interacts with patients and allows me to get a sense for their uh, skill set. Uh, I find those clinic inter interactions be much more valuable um, than in the operating room. Great. So when you're asked to write a letter of recommendation, what kind of things do you do to prepare to write it? And are there certain things that you ask from students to help you to write it once they've actually requested it? So I ask our students to provide me with a, uh, a fair amount of information. And I, I ask them to also provide that information to their other letter writers within our department or outside of our department. I like to have an updated uh, CV, of course. And I like to have a, a a draft of their personal statement that's pretty complete. Uh, I'd like to know more about them, kind of what makes them tick, what uh, led to their um, desire to pursue this field. I like to have a copy of their grades and some of the comments that um, come from those clinical grades, those evaluations. That way I get a sense for what kind of student they were. Uh, I like to know their uh, measurables, so to speak, uh, in terms of if they have a step one or step two uh, board score. Um, and then uh, I'd like to just kind of know some of their interests. And usually that's on their CV, but what, what do they like to do outside of medicine? Where, you know, where are some of their passions just to kind of better understand who they are? Um, in this meeting, I'm also providing them some advice of who they should ask for letters from our department or outside the department. 
Uh, I do this with all of our students, not just our home students, but our away rotating students. So I'll sit down and meet with them if they rotate with us in our department in May, June, July, August, any of those times, and they may be requesting a letter from our, our faculty. And are there certain domains that you try to touch on in each and every letter of recommendation that you write? So there's uh, the students should be aware of the standardized letter of recommendation that exists. Um, it's on the OPDO SUO website. So you can see what categories are on that letter of recommendation. Most otolaryngology faculty u- utilize the standardized letter of recommendation when they write their letter. And so you can see the categories that we're evaluating the student. And so I also like to provide a, um, a written letter outside of that standardized letter. Uh, most, probably 80% of the uh, letter writers across the country in otolaryngology utilize the standardized letter of recommendation. And then they often provide some commentary at the end of that standardized letter or a separate letter altogether. I like to provide a separate letter. It allows me to just really dive deep into some of the uh, attributes of the applicant. I start the letter by stating how long I've known the applicant. That way, um, the reader really understands my connection with them. I like to talk uh, about some of their accomplishments that are really noteworthy. Uh, If I did research with them or I spent time with them in clinic, um, I like to talk about their Uh, communication skills, their work ethic, their ability to interact with patients. And in my field as a laryngologist, I like to teach the students how to do procedures. Specifically in the office, I have them doing, you know, flexible laryngoscopy, stroboscopy, fees exams. And by, you know, the end of the week or the end of the rotation, I expect them to be pretty proficient at these, these skills. And I want them to um, show me how they, how they do these procedures. And I can comment in the letter about their hands and their skills, not just in the operating room, but in the, in the clinic setting. Uh, lastly, I like to kind of point out um, how strong of an applicant they are. I view them to be, um, you know, our desire to interview them as well, encouraging the letter writer, I'm sorry, encouraging the reader to uh, consider the applicant for an interview and meet them in person and, and words like that. So you kind of already brought this up. Um, in regards to the standardized letter of recommendation. Um, But I was wondering if you'd be able to go a little more in detail about why the standardized letter of recommendation came to fruition and what benefits it has over a typical narrative letter of recommendation. I think there's pros and cons to the standardized letter of recommendation, in my opinion. Uh, It exists because I think reviewers of applications were frustrated at times that many of the letters of recommendation were um, not providing a lot of great detail as to should we interview this candidate or not. Um, And so the standardized letter is meant to be a little more objective on a scale. Now, obviously, there's subjectivity when you're grading or or marking these uh, scales on on the form, but it's meant to at least provide a little more objectivity to where that applicant stands in some of the critical areas such as communication skills and dedication to the field and interest in academic medicine and likelihood to match. Some of those things, um, you know, can help the reviewer really understand where are the strengths and weaknesses for this applicant. But I still think that there's a, a lot of benefit to have some open commentary talking about the, the applicant's interpersonal skills how they communicate with patients, their work ethic, their dedication to the field. And I like to try to provide examples of that. Um, Like I said, typically that's in the, in the clinic setting, or if I've, uh, you know, performed research with the, with the applicant. 
So if I understand right, you kind of blend both a standardized and a narrative letter when you write for each applicant. Yes, I, I find it helpful to really um, highlight some of the key attributes of the applicant. And I think the standardized letter of recommendation allows you to hit some of the key areas and you can grade that applicant on this linear scale, um, you know, at the highest level or the lowest level on this scale. Um, but I think the, the commentary of a, an actual letter that supplements the standardized letter allows me to really talk about the, the areas that I really enjoy about the applicant and why I think that applicant, you know, would make a great resident physician. I like to talk about, as a program director, I like to kind of key on areas that um, the applicant is really strong at that I think will allow um, them to, th to thrive in a residency program. You know, we're looking for applicants and future resident physicians that are going to be great learners, but also be great team teammates to the, you know, to the entire program, the, the co-residents who they're going to get along with. And I think that's key as a program director to kind of talk about, okay, this person really integrated well with the team. They had the ability to work independently, but also, uh, you know, take criticism well. And some of the key things that you're looking for as a program director, when you're trying to select, um, you know, your rank list or who to interview. Yeah. And I think that one of the things you already brought up is one of the main criticisms of the standardized letter is that when all applicants are above average, that the ability to discriminate between applicants becomes more challenging. And I've heard uh, both that in one regard, it should be used to compare against the general medical student pool, you know, for all applicants, regardless of whether applying to ENT or not. And another that it should be used to compare to other ENT applicants. What do you particularly use, and do you know if there's one over the other that's recommended when scaling on a linear scale? No, I haven't seen uh, anyone recommend, um, you know, using one scale versus the general medical student pool versus the uh, otolaryngology applicant pool. There have not really been recommendations on that, on how to complete it. Um, so that's, that's a very good point. I typically compare... Uh, the applicant to other applicants. So I try to determine, you know, where do they fall on the likelihood to match their dedication to the field. And so many of those applicants are going to fall on the high end, of course. Um, and so the argument remain, you know, remains there. How useful are the standardized letters of recommendation? I think they're quicker to read. And when you're reviewing 500 applications a year and you're reading three to four um, letters of recommendation for all of these applications, they are quicker to read. However, um, you still need some of that nuance of the commentary that comes at the end. And so I think most letter writers try to keep the commentary brief and short as opposed to a, a two-page letter now. They try to provide some of the highlights of why this applicant would be a great fit for a residency program and just supplementing the standardized letter of recommendation. I think adding to what you just said, I had read a study that said that the narrative letters were typically around 330 words. And when emergency medicine first put them into place, they found that narrative letters took about 90 seconds for a reviewer to look at, whereas the standardized only took 16. So certainly they can shorten things up when kind of doing your first pass. Yeah, they definitely sh shorten it up. And um, you think about it, I mean, when you have, that's 1500, 1,500 letters of recommendation to review out of all these applications, at least the last couple of years, when we've had nearly 500 applications, uh, it's a lot to review. And so um, you, you do want to be efficient with your time, but 
there's there's little nuances that you don't want to miss, and those letters are important. Yeah, I think that segues good into the next question I wanted to ask. Um, so obviously, faculty are very busy. How long should they be taking to do their due diligence and write a good letter, but also not consume their time? Uh, you know, that's variable from one person to the next. Um, some people can write write a letter very quickly. They're just gifted at writing, let's say. And um, people that have a lot of practice with this, you know, um, a chair or a program director or associate program director, or division director that writes several per year, they know what they want to write about. So it may only take me, you know, 30 minutes, an hour probably to write a, a strong letter of recommendation for an applicant, especially someone that I know well, I know their CV, I'm reviewing their their CV and their personal statement to pick up on anything that I um, maybe didn't know. But uh, I think a general time frame to spend is probably 45 minutes to an hour for for a good letter of recommendation to re, you know write it, review it, make sure you, you like it. Um, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. And, and as far as like a template for what you're writing, do you use a specific template that you have saved on your computer for each applicant outside of the standardized letter of recommendation? I don't and probably be more efficient, but I don't want it to come across as too templated. So I, um, obviously the standard standardized letter of recommendation I've downloaded and I can fill that out fairly, fairly quickly, but the actual commentary portion, um, that I write is about three quarters of a page. And I, again, I have my, I have a template in my mind in that I like the first paragraph to talk about how I know the applicant, how long I've known them, how I've worked with them. You know, some of them I know very well. I've, you know, served as a mentor, uh, as an assigned mentor. I've uh, worked in research with them. I've worked on committees with them. Uh, others I know less um, thoroughly. And so uh, I spend uh, some time explaining how I know them. And then again, uh, the next remaining, you know, two to two paragraphs are about some of the highlights or attributes that really make them an ideal candidate for residency position. And I like to summarize um, how strong of an applicant this um, person is. And, and that's that's kind of where you can find a little nuance between letters of uh, this letter writer really likes this person. Um, they're considering them for their own program versus this is a strong applicant and they've maybe encouraged them to kind of look all over the country. Um, and still be very happy to match, of course. Yeah, and you're hinting towards something that I've heard before, is that there's often kind of an unwritten language that goes into letters of recommendation. So you already brought up a few, but what kind of key phrases do you put in letters or look for in letters that signal to evaluators that a student really is the cream of the crop? You know, I I do use... um, Sometimes I will compare uh, and say, this is the top applicant. If it's clear, you know, this is the top applicant out of our institution this year, because sometimes there are, you know, many students from one institution and and people want to know who is the top applicant, or I'll say they're, you know, in the, in the, in the top group of our applicants this year in a very strong group. So I'll use some terminology like that. Um, I also will comment on, um, how I think this person will integrate into a residency program. And I'll use words like uh, they are completely prepared and dedicated to the field and they are a program director's dream in terms of, um, you know, commitment to teamwork um, and, and working with others. Um, you know, you see things like they're the top uh, student that they've seen in the last five years. That says something, especially if it's some someone that you know that writes a lot of letters or has several medical students that they're working with each year. If they're saying they're the top student in the last five years, that's a tremendous student. 
So you see commentary like that. I will use words like they, um, uh, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, I give them my highest possible recommendation, meaning, you know, I, I couldn't be more, th- you know, thrilled to, to re- you know, write this letter of recommendation. Or sometimes you'll see language, and I've used this language saying, we would be thrilled to match this person at our own program. Um, and, you know, uh, that's obviously truthful in, in many regards. So. I bring up this next question to help letter writers ensure that they're not inadvertently sabotaging an applicant by using certain phrases. So on the opposite end of that unwritten language spectrum, are there certain phrases that might be used as more of a gentle letdown and actually signal a poor or mediocre evaluation in a letter that you look for? That's hard to tell sometimes. And so, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes reviewers will reach out to faculty members at other institutions to clarify. I always include at the end of my letter, if there are any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to me. Um, but generally speaking, I think my letters are very clearly stated and I don't, uh, not, I don't have too many faculty um, from other institutions contacting me to explain. But uh, that would be something that they, you may, um, as a reviewer, um, if I'm not quite certain about the language and I want to understand it better, I will call that faculty member and ask them, you know, um, if there's any anything that they meant um, separate uh, from the letter. If the letter's fairly average, you know, um, and you know when you've been in this position for a while, you know a lot of the letter writers. You know if their letters tend to be, um, um, you know, uh, overstated or understated or just kind of even keel you can kind of tell when they're really truly thrilled about an applicant by, you know, learning some of that. I think uh, it's rare to find a, an, a letter of recommendation where the letter writer states, you know, uh, something about this, this was a very average applicant or this was a below average applicant or something like that, that um, hidden language where you have to try to read behind the lines, uh, read between the lines, I should say. I think most of the time in those scenarios, Letter writers will talk to the applicant, I would hope, and say, you know, I don't know you that well, or um, it's hard for me to give you a glowing letter based on our um, work experiences together. Um, and I, th- I would expect in those situations, the letter writers would be honest with the applicant um, prior to writing a, a below average letter. Great. I think that's really helpful. So, Dr. De Silva, if you were a more junior faculty and a student came up to you and asked you for a letter of recommendation, uh, would you consider passing to allow that student to get a letter from a more senior or "quote unquote" more connected letter writer? Um, that's a good question, and I think it depends on the institution and the size of the faculty there and such. Uh, a junior faculty member sometimes they write the, the amazing letters because they've worked. With, it depends on how well they know the applicant. If they worked with them a great deal, they did research with them, I would encourage that junior faculty member to write that letter. Um, and that's uh, it's also a way um, for them to get experience and, and feel very comfortable with writing future letters. They're not going to get better at it unless they, unless they do that. Um, a junior faculty member that may not be that comfortable, they may want to have one of their senior letter writers or program director or chair review the letter before they send it out so that they're kind of all on the same page, so to speak. So I would encourage them to go ahead and write the letter. I think that the key thing is, is if you don't know the applicant that well. So if they were just in your clinic for one day or in the operating room a couple of days, 
and you really haven't had a chance to get to know the applicant, I think it's important to have a frank discussion with the applicant and say, who else are you asking to write your letters? Who else have you worked with in our department, you know, uh, more than me or, or outside of, you know, our relationship and be able to state, okay, we've only, you know, interacted twice. Um, I don't know you that well. I'm happy to write a letter, but it may be difficult for me to write a glowing or outstanding letter based on our um, limited interactions. And that's, that's a hard thing for faculty to do, but it, they should, should do that um, to be, um, you know, forthright and honest with the applicant. I think if you have a large faculty and you have other opportunities for letter writers, then you may want to defer in that situation if they don't know them well. But just being a junior faculty member is not a reason to pass to a senior faculty member to write the letter. Um, it all depends on how well you know the applicant, I think. And what about joint letters or co-signing a letter with another, maybe more senior faculty member? Have you seen that and would you recommend it? So that, I would say that that happens more commonly now. And, it's, it, and you see it in different scenarios. You'll see the chair and the program director write the letter together. Um, at our institution, we have frequently had the medical student education director and the chair write a combined letter together. Um, and the medical student education director often knows the medical student very well, as well as the program director. And the chair typically knows the applicant well also, maybe not as well as the, the medical student education director and the program director. So in our institution, we do have some combined letters. It, the benefit of it is you have a letter that's signed by two people. It's both of their words. And so it's almost like having two letters in one. When you're, when you're limited to three or four letters, to have five opinions for people, I think it really is a great thing. That doesn't mean you need to have two or three people sign off on one letter for every time, but some people choose to do that. You know, many faculty have a lab and they work with a, a PhD in their lab. Um, and so they'll have uh, both the, the researcher and the clinical faculty member, um, you know, write the letter in combination, especially if that applicant did research in that lab. So that's another good example where a combined letter really provides the, the clinical support, the patient interaction uh, aspect that the faculty, the clinical faculty member sees, but also the research background, how they performed with deadlines and, you know, manuscript writing and all the things that they did in the lab with working with the PhD. I think there's scenarios where that really works well, a, a combined letter um, from two people. Do you allow students to read their letters or do you ever share with them what you've put in your letters either before or after the fact? I never have. I haven't had a student ask me to review the letter in the past. And again, I've been a program director for over 10 years and I wrote letters of recommendation prior to being a program director. So uh, I've never had a student ask me to see the letter or review it. I've never offered. Um, I would be comfortable sharing the letter with the applicant because I'm always uh, honest and truthful in these letters. And, and uh, you know, I haven't written anything that I wouldn't say to them, you know, face to face. So I, um, I don't think students would typically ask a letter writer to see the letter. I think what happens sometimes on the, um, anyone that's gone through otolaryngology interviews, they will get to the interview day and someone will state, oh, Dr. So-and-so, pro your program director really likes you. They wrote a glowing letter. So I think some students get an idea of what the letters may state um, based on you know, some interview interactions, but they, they never truly know every word or, or see the letters. 
Yeah, I'll point out in ARIS, students uh, have the option to waive the ability to review their letters, um, but I think almost universally students select not to, and I think part of that's because it can, uh, I mean, I think it'd look unfavorable for a student to say that they wanted to read their own letters before they send them out. I agree, and there's always a chance of creating bias and such in those situations, so I think it's um, most prudent for the student to continue to waive their right to view the letter. Um, I think the faculty will feel more comfortable in general. And you have to understand that as a program director, we're in situations where we're meeting with these students six months, a year, sometimes more prior to writing the letter in advance. We're meeting with these students and and trying to inform them of how competitive of an applicant they are based on their research and their grades and such and some of the measurables. And so we've already sat down with them and had some of the difficult conversations of, you know, you should consider dual applying, you should consider another field. you should, um, these are the areas you need to kind of work on, you know, or what kind, you know, how competitive an applicant is. So it's, I think it's easier for the program directors and the uh, medical student education directors to really um, have those uh, difficult conversations with the, with the students and their competitiveness in, in a very difficult field to match into. There is literature out there that supports the notion that biases may impact the wording that letter writers use when describing candidates, particularly in regards to the letter requester's gender or sex. What advice do you have to provide an equitable opportunity for candidates in terms of language within a letter of recommendation? Um, I like to, if if it's a reapplicant and they've already graduated, um, then I typically refer to them as Dr. whatever their last name is. Um, but otherwise, I typically ask the applicant how they like to be addressed, and I will use their their first name, um, or I'll ask them how they like to be addressed in the letter so that they know for interview purposes as well. Um, sometimes I'll include, so it's not confusing to the reader, their full name, but then if they go by a nickname or a shortened name, I will um, refer to that in the letter. And most letter writers will do that so that you are prepared on interview day of how they like to be addressed. Um, and so I, I, when I meet with them and they provide me that information, I like to ask them how they like to be addressed. And I include that throughout the language of the letter. So I think that's an important thing to do. And I, and I, you know, I think it's important to use the same language for all applicants. I, I don't, um, you know, use, you know, different language for males versus females versus, you know, any other, um, you know, concerns there. I usually refer to them as a senior medical student, um, unless they've graduated and they are now a reapplicant and have already graduated from medical school. Do you have any additional advice for faculty who want to write better, stronger, and more effective letters of recommendation that you haven't already brought up up to this point? I think it's uh, better to, to keep it shorter, to not... Um, to not just rehash their um, application or their CV. I think it's important to have three or four highlights that they want the reader to really note uh, regarding the strengths of this applicant. I think it's uh, many um, letter writers will bold the key phrases um, so that they really stand out on the page. And that's really helpful when you're reading so many letters of recommendation, you can kind of filter through some of the um, extraneous information and really kind of, you know, focus on some of the highlighted material within the letter. So many letter writers will do that. And I think that's helpful for someone that reviews a lot of letters like I do. Um, 
And then again, I, I think it's important to be honest with the applicant. That's the most difficult thing. If you don't know the applicant that well, or you don't feel you can write a strong letter of recommendation, I think it's important. It's a difficult conversation, but I think it's important for that faculty member to tell the applicant that. You're not doing them any favors by writing a below average letter just because they asked you to write a letter for them. I think it's, uh, if you're honest with them, they can choose to continue to have your letter or ask someone else. And so if you don't know them well, I mentioned earlier, let's find a faculty member that maybe you've worked with more. Um, if it's a small program and, and they have limited opportunities to ask for letters, maybe it's a, a student that doesn't have a home program, then there, you got to take opportunities to get to know them. You have to say, okay, why don't we take an hour? Let's go get some coffee. Let's get to know each other a little better. Let me review your CV first. And you have to work at it a little bit in those situations. And you owe it to the applicant. Um, this is an important process. This is their future career on the line. And I think you owe it to them to uh, be honest with them, but also um, help learn as much as you can about them so that they have a, a strong application. Well, Dr. De Silva, we really appreciate being able to lean into a bit of your experience and wisdom in this area. I think as a recent applicant, I really appreciate being able to peek behind the curtains and understand more of the process that goes into writing some of these letters. And I anticipate that this will be very useful to people who are on the other end and are, and are writing the letters themselves. This was great. Thanks, Dr. Meekham. And anytime uh, anyone has questions, I'm obviously available via email. They can find me on the internet. Well, that about wraps things up for today's episode. Thank you to everyone for tuning in and best of luck with writing your letters of recommendation in the upcoming cycles. We'll catch you next time on the next episode of ENT in a Nutshell.